everyone, and welcome to another exciting edition of the S Factor right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. So much going on in the world of science, let's get right into it. Scientists have been left baffled after discovering the Earth is spinning faster than normal, making days shorter than usual. New measurements by the UK's National Physical Laboratory show that the Earth is spinning faster than it was half a century ago. On June 29th, the Earth's full rotation took 1.59 milliseconds less than 24 hours, the shortest day ever recorded. Scientists have warned that if the rotation rate continues to speed up, we may need to remove a second from our atomic clocks. If Earth's fast rotation continues, it could lead to the introduction of the first ever negative leap second, astrophysicist Graham Jones reported via DaytonTime.com. This would be required to keep civil time, which is based on the super-steady beat of atomic clocks, in step with solar time, which is based on the movement of the sun across the sky. A negative leap second would mean that our clocks skip one second, which could potentially create problems for IT systems. Researchers at Meta said a leap second would have colossal effects on technology and become a major source of pain for hardware infrastructures. The impact of a negative leap second has never been tested on a large scale. It could have a devastating effect on software relying on times or schedulers. A blog post on the topic authored by researchers recently claimed. Now, the scientists claim the irregular rotations are the result of something called the Chandler Wobbler, an irregular movement of Earth's geographical poles across the surface of the globe. The normal amplitude of the Chandler Wobble is about 3 to 4 meters at Earth's surface but from 2017 to 2020, it disappeared. Some experts believe the melting and refreezing of ice caps on the world's tallest mountains could be contributing to the irregular speed. Earth has recorded its shortest day since scientists began using atomic clocks to measure its rotational speed. On June 29, 2022, Earth completed one spin in 1.59 milliseconds less than 24 hours. This is the latest in a series of speed records for Earth since 2020. If you look at that time there, 1.59 milliseconds, less than 24 hours, that doesn't seem like a whole lot. That's such a small blip. But apparently these scientists are saying that this could have major implications for our technology. Now they said there's a 70% chance the planet has already reached a minimum length of a day, meaning we would likely never have to use a negative leap second. But they claim there's no way to know that for certain. So that's very interesting there. They may have to adjust those atomic clocks. Again, I want to thank you for joining me here today on The S Factor. If you have a question or comment, there is no phone calls taken because this is a pre-recorded show. It's new, but it's pre-recorded. So simply send me an email, info at scienceanimated.net. That's the email address. That's info at scienceanimated.net. And we can start a dialogue. Or you can send me a message on any of the social media platforms that Science Animated is a part of. Now, usually when I promote this show, The Yes Factor, whether it's the radio show here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT or the podcast, I like to have a little fun. And I like to say this show is brain food. Well, speaking of brains, can minds persist when they are cut off from the world? Could we ever create a brain in a vat? The following from Live Science, could a brain ever exist on its own, divorced from or independent of a body? For a long time, philosophers have pondered such brain-in-a-vat scenarios, asking whether isolated brains could maintain consciousness 
when separated from their bodies and senses. Typically, a person's experiences are categorized by a web of interactions between the human brain, body, and environment. But recent developments in neuroscience mean this conversation has moved from the realm of hypothetical speculation in science fiction to isolated examples where consciousness could be sealed off from the rest of the world. In a 2020 study detailed in the journal Trends in Neuroscience, philosopher Tim Bain of the University of Melbourne and neuroscientist and Marcelo Massimini of the University of Milan in Italy described contexts in which such islands of awareness could exist. In one possible situation, a brain that has been removed from its host is able to sustain consciousness using the oxygen and nutrients necessary for function delivered via some kind of apparatus. This is called the brain. In a study that sounds like something out of a horror movie, researchers were able to successfully restore blood flow to brain cells, cellular functions of neurons, and spontaneous synapse activity in pigs' brains that were removed after death and connected to a system called BrainX. The system, which is designed to slow the degeneration of brain tissue after death, can be connected to the base of a postmortem brain, delivering warm, artificial, oxygenated blood. In people who suffer from severe refractory epilepsy, one treatment called a hemispherotomy involves completely disconnecting the damaged half of the brain from the other hemisphere, brainstem and thalamus. In these cases, the damaged half remains inside the skull and connected to the vascular system, while the disconnected hemisphere continues to receive the nutrients and oxygen needed for function, some have wondered whether this isolated hemisphere supports an adjacent consciousness to the opposing connected hemisphere. And of course, this question has been asked for centuries. What is consciousness? Where is it located? And scientists have created lab-based mini-brains, 3D structures developed from stem cells that display various features of the developing human brain, some of these brains in the dish have brain waves, similar to those seen in preterm babies. But do any of these brains actually possess consciousness? Scientists can't deduce consciousness from behavior in these cases, nor can they ask these brains if they ha are experiencing consciousness. This, con this conundrum has led neuroscientists to devise a potential objective measure of consciousness. For instance, scientists could use a so-called perturbational complexity index, PCI, which is based on the level of interactions between neurons within these brains. Using this index, scientists would electrically stimulate a part of the brain and then measure the resulting patterns of neural activity to gauge the complexity of brain cell interactions. The resulting measurement of these interactions carries a lot of information. Then the system can be said to be more conscious. It's kind of like tossing a rock into a pond and measuring the resulting ripples. If the ripples interact with other objects in the pond, setting off more ripples than the more conscious the system. In states where people have not been fully conscious, PCI has been a reliable indicator of their level of consciousness. For instance, being in a coma sleeping would be considered a lower, lower level of consciousness or awareness. But even if consciousness doesn't turn out to be reducible to any neural signal in the brain, Bain believes the task of developing an objective measure of consciousness is still a valid one. While these techniques might not be able to definitively answer the question of whether consciousness is present in these contexts, they will provide answers to some fundamental questions, such as whether islands of awareness have the same level of neural complexity as the brains of conscious subjects. Or do these brains simply go offline once disconnected from the external world?
Consciousness has been a very hot topic in the news as of late. On last month's edition of The S Factor, I talk about Google DeepMind and the, and the teams at Google, the AI team, working day and night to create artificial intelligence. There's a whole system that Google employs to determine whether or not AI is conscious. In my opinion, there's only one way to truly know if artificial intelligence, for example, obtains true consciousness. We have to know if it's self-aware. That is the only way we will know if consciousness exists for, like in, in this case, AI. Something has got to be self-aware. What does that mean? Knowing that you exist. And that is going to be a very tough event to measure. But as you can see here, we're still learning about the brain. We're trying to tinker around, figure out what part of the brain does consciousness come from? Can brains that are literally disconnected be reanimated with artificial blood and have some level of consciousness? We're going to talk about some really cool innovations in the world of technology now. This next story is about a sticker. And you may ask, what are you talking about, a sticker? Well, this sticker looks inside the body. The following from Scientific American. Ultrasound scanners, which image the inside of the human body, are a life-saving medical tool. Now researchers have shrunk the handheld ultrasound probe, which typically requires a highly trained technician to move over the skin, down to a flat chip, that is the size of a postage stamp and sticks to the skin with a special bioadhesive. The new device can record high-resolution videos for two days at a stretch, capturing blood vessels and heart laboring during exercise or stomachs ex expanding and shrinking as test subjects gulp the juice and then digest it. The beauty of this is suddenly you can adhere this ultrasound probe this thin ultrasound speaker to the body over 48 hours. By recording still pictures and videos of internal organs during this time, a wearable imaging device could be used to diagnose heart attacks and malignant tumors, test the effectiveness of medications, and assess general heart, lung, or muscle health. This can potentially change the paradigm of medical imaging by empowering long-term continu continuous imaging. Now, traditional ultrasounds are great at peering beneath the skin without causing damage to the body, but access to such scans is limited. The conventional handheld ultrasound requires well-trained technicians to put the probe properly on the skin and apply some liquid gel between the probe and skin. And as you can imagine, it's quite tedious and very short-term, very constrained, because they require an experienced human operator. Now, conventional ultrasounds have a lot of limitations, if we can make ultrasound sensors wearable and mobile and accessible, it will open a lot of new possibilities. Now, thanks to their potential versatility, other researchers have attempted to make stick-on ultrasound patches. But in order to adhere to soft, stretchy skin, earlier devices were designed to be stretchable themselves. This form factor weakened the image quality because it could not accommodate as many transducers Units that, in this case, transform electrical power into sound waves with frequencies too high for human ears to detect. An ultrasound probe sends these waves through a layer of gooey gel into the human body, where they bounce off organs and other internal structures and then return to the transducer array. This converts the medical waves back to electrical signals and sends them to a computer for translation into images. The more transducers, the better the image quality. 
It's very similar to a camera, explains Philip Tan, an electrical engineer and a graduate student at UT Austin, who was also not involved with a new study, but co-wrote the analysis piece. A stretchy stick-on ultrasound probe, which must be able to flex every time the skin moves, cannot pack as many transducers into the array, and when the wearer moves, the configuration of transducers shifts and makes it difficult to capture stable images. To image different body systems, they tested various versions of the probe that produce waves at different frequencies and thus penetrate the body to different depths. For instance, if high frequencies such as 10 megahertz might make it to a couple of centimeters beneath the skin, that the researchers used this frequency to capture the action of blood vessels and muscles as test subjects shifted from sitting to standing or exercised vigorously. A lower frequency of 3 megahertz goes deeper, more like 6 centimeters to capture internal organs. Now using this frequency, the researchers imaged the four chambers of a subject's heart and recorded the stomach of another emptying out as their system processed a couple of cups of juice. The researchers also compared the images gathered with their rigid ultrasound probe with those captured by a stretchable ultrasound device. You can see the resolution is almost one order of magnitude 10 times higher than the stretchable ultrasound. Now, doesn't this technology sound cool? I mean, this sounds like you, we can take ultrasounds to a whole new level to where the patient doesn't have to be restrained and, and hold still so someone can you know, use that gel and that probe and, and look inside of them. This seems much more versatile, like, like they say here. Now, an imaging device that maintains a continuous watch over specific parts of the body could be used to monitor and diagnose a variety of ailments. Doctors could keep a close eye on the growth of a tumor over time. Someone at high risk of hypertension might wear an ultrasound patch to measure their high blood pressure, alerting them when the pressure spikes or tracking whether a medication is helping. Now, a COVID patient could stay home knowing that an imaging device would alert them if their illness caused a lung infection severe enough to require hospitalization. And perhaps the most important application could be in the detection and diagnosis of heart attacks. Now, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the world. Also in the U.S., heart health is on the radar of other wearable device developers. For instance, smartwatches such as the Apple Watch are capable of tracking the electrical signals that indicate heart activity. And with so-called electrocardiogram, this can be used to diagnose heart attacks, at least in some cases. The big selling point of this new device is that it opens up new types of medical diagnosis that can't be done in a static setting. It's like I was saying before, this can monitor you while you're doing things. You don't have to be stuck in an office. This is great technology. It'll be interesting to see how long it takes for them to get a prototype ready and for this to enter the marketplace. But what an incredible way, what an innovative way to completely change the way ultrasound is done. Very exciting stuff. Now, this summer, the summer of 2022, has been extremely hot. Now, I'm stationed here in South Jersey in Vineland, but if you're listening to me on the podcast, you could be from anywhere in the U.S. or the world for that matter. But across the U.S., no matter where you are, it has been a very hot summer. Now, this is from Science News. Humans may not be able to handle as much heat as scientists thought. More than 2,000 people dead from extreme heat and wildfires raging in Portugal and Spain. High temperature records shattered from England to Japan, and overnights that failed to cool. Brutal heat waves are quickly becoming the hallmark of the summer of 2022. And even as climate change continues to crank up the temperature, scientists are working fast to understand the limits of human resilience 
to heat extremes. Recent research suggests that heat stress tolerance in people may be lower than previously thought. If true, millions more people could be at risk of succumbing to dangerous temperatures sooner than expected. Now, bodies are capable of acclimating over a period of time. The temperature changes, says Vidik Sanjus, an environmental planning and climate adaptation researcher at Portland State University in Oregon. Over geologic time, there have been many climate shifts that humans have weathered, Shanda says, but we're in a time when these shifts are happening much more quickly. Again, you know, I always kind of get worried when it comes to talking about weather on, my, on the S-Factor here because... There are kind of like two schools of people out there. There's a school that says, you know, humans have very little or nothing to do with this. And then there are people that say, we have a lot to do with it. But if you look at the geological records, I mean, you can see the Earth has absolutely gone through some pretty extreme shifts in temperature, even at points where humans weren't even here. Or we're here, but <laughs> we're very low tech. But there's no question that things are getting pretty warm out there. Now, just halfway through 2022, heat waves have already ravaged many countries. The heat arrived early in Southeast Asia in March. India saw a high of 45 degrees Celsius. And in Pakistan, they recorded temperatures that rose to 49 Celsius, which is 121 degrees Fahrenheit. And the rising temperatures exacerbating drought and sparking wildfires. The United Kingdom shattered its hottest ever record July 19th when temperatures reached 40 degrees Celsius in the English village of Coningsby. The heat fueled fires in France, forcing thousands to evacuate from their homes. And the litany goes on. June brought Japan its worst heat wave since record-keeping began in 1875, leading to the country's highest ever recorded temperature of 40.2 Celsius. In the United States, a series of heat waves gripped the Midwest, the South, and the West in June and July. Temperatures soared to 42 degrees Celsius, 45 degrees Celsius in Phoenix. Now that's around 107 degrees Fahrenheit. Now scientists have been predicting that human-caused climate change will increase the occurrence of heat waves. Now globally, humans' exposure to extreme heat tripled from 1983 to 2016, particularly in South Asia. The heat already is taking an increasing toll on human health. It can cause heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke, which is often fatal, and then also dehydration can lead to kidney and heart disease, and extreme heat can even change how we behave, increasing aggression and decreasing our ability to focus. Have you ever had your air conditioning go out when it's an extremely hot day, or you have a period of hot days and that happens? Now, what happens to the body when it gets so hot? Now, the human body has various ways to shed excess heat and keep the core of the body at an optimal temperature of about 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Now here's how it does it. The heart pumps faster, speeding up blood flow that carries heat to the skin, and air passing over the skin can wick away some of the heat. Evaporative cooling, sweating, also helps. But there's a limit to how much heat humans can endure. In 2010, scientists estimated theoretical heat stress limit would be at a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius which is 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, wet bulb temperatures depend on a combination of humidity and dry bulb air temperature, measured by a thermometer. Those variables mean a place could hit a wet bulb temperature of 95 degrees Fahrenheit in different ways. For instance, if the air is that temperature and there's 100% humidity, where the air temperature is 114 degrees Fahrenheit and there's a 50% humidity, 
difference is due to evaporative cooling. And you know, when it's hot like this outside, you do have to be extremely careful. You get to hydrate very, very easily. Now today's August 6th, 2022. This week in particular has been very hot. We've had many hot weeks. The danger with dehydration is a real one. And I've personally suffered from dehydration to the point where I started to see, I've seen stars and almost passed out from it. So when you're outside in the heat and you're sweating, that sweat, much of the sweat evaporates before it sticks to your clothing, before it drips off your nose. You have already lost a ton of water. So you've got to stay hydrated. It's actually very important and it's not something to be taken lightly. It can be very serious. Now, when water evaporates from the skin or another surface, it steals away energy in the form of heat, briefly cooling that surface. That means in drier regions, the wet bulb temperature, where the epidermal cooling effect really happens, will be lower than the actual air temperature. In humid regions, however, wet and dry bulb temperatures are similar because the air is so much because the air is so moist. It's difficult for sweat to evaporate quickly. So how hot is too hot? Now, given the complexity of the body's cooling system and the diversity of human bodies, there isn't really a one-size-fits-all threshold temperature for heat stress for everybody. No one's body runs at 100% efficiency. Different body sizes, the ability to sweat, age, and acclimation to a regional climate all have a role. Still, for the last decade, that theoretical wet bulb 95 degree number has been considered to be the point beyond which humans can no longer regulate their body's temperatures. But the recent laboratory-based research suggests that real-world threshold for human heat stress is much lower, even for young and healthy adults. Now, if the human body's tolerance for heat stress is generally lower than scientists have realized, that could mean millions more people would be at risk from the deadliest heat sooner than scientists have realized. As of 2020, there were few reports of the wet bulb temperatures around the world reaching 95 degrees Fahrenheit, but climate simulations project that limit could be regularly exceeded in parts of South Asia and the Middle East by the middle of the century. Now, these scientists seem to think that the temperatures are getting warmer faster than they had expected. Electrical bacteria may help clean oil spills and curb methane emissions. The small motorboat anchors in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. Shrieks of wintering birds assault the vessel's five crew members, all clad in bright orange flotation suits. One of the crew slowly pulls a rope out of the water to retrieve a plastic tube about the length of a person's arm and filled with mud from the bottom of the bay. As the tube is hauled on board, the stench of rotten, the stench of rotten eggs fills the air. Chesapeake Bay mud is stinky, says Sarah Malkin, a biochemist at the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science in Cambridge, who is aboard the boat. The smell comes from sulfuric chemicals called sulfides within the mud. They're quite toxic, Mulkin explains. Mulkin and her team venture out into the bay every couple of months to sample the foul muck and track the abundance of squiggly mud, mud dwellers called cable bacteria. The microbes are living wires. Their thread-like bodies, thinner than a human hair, can channel electricity. Now, cable bacteria use that power to chemically rewire their surroundings. While some microbes in the area produce sulfides, the cable bacteria remove those chemicals and help prevent them from moving up into the water column. By managing sulfides, cable bacteria may protect fish, crustaceans, and other aquatic organisms from a toxic nightmare, says Philip Maisman, a biochemist at the University of Belgium. They're kind of like guardian angels in these coastal ecosystems. 
Now scientists are studying how these living electrical filaments might do in other ways. Laboratory experiments show that cable bacteria can support other microbes that consume crude oil. So researchers are investigating how to encourage the bacteria's growth to help clean up oil spills. What's more, researchers have shown that cable bacteria could help slash emissions of a potent greenhouse gas, methane, into the atmosphere. There's plenty of evidence that cable bacteria exert a strong influence over their microbial neighbors, Maisman says. The next step, he says, is to figure out how to channel that influence for the greater good. Now, under the microscope, cable bacteria resemble long sausage links. Their multicellular bodies can grow up to 5 centimeters long. Embedded in the envelope of each cell are parallel wires of conductive proteins, which the bacteria use to channel electrons. Now, according to Maisman, the wires are more conductive than the semiconductors found in electronics. How incredible is that? We may actually find the answer by just looking at biology a little bit closer, looking at our ecosystem just a little closer. Now, most often, cable bacteria nestle shallow in the sediment, with one end positioned near the surface, where there is oxygen, and the other end plugged into deeper, sulfide-rich zones. Using their filament bodies as electrical conduits, cable bacteria snatch electrons from sulfides on one end and offload them to oxygen, an eager electron acceptor at the other, says Nicole Grelings, a biochemist at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Similar to how batteries charge and release energy by transferring electrons between an anode and cathode, cable bacteria power themselves by channeling electrons, she says. The electron transport gives cable bacteria the energy. This unique lifestyle allows cable bacteria to survive in an environment that many organisms cannot endure. In 2015, Malkin and his colleagues reported that cable bacteria may help to counteract the onset euxenia, a fatal buildup of sulfides in, in oxygen-starved bodies of water. Exenia can trigger mass die-offs of fish, crustaceans, and other aquatic life. The lethal phenomenon can occur after fertilizers or sewage are washed into the sea or lakes. That flow of nutrients can trigger algae blooms. When those nutrients are depleted, the blooms die, and large quantities of organic matter sink and accumulate on the sediment. Microbes then decompose the dead material, devouring much of the oxygen in the surrounding water in the process. When oxygen levels become critically low, Sulfides may begin to leak from the sediment into the water, giving rise to exenia. While studying cable bacteria in a brackish body of water in the Netherlands, Malkin and colleagues discovered a thin layer of rust coating the lake's bottom. As the cable bacteria pulled electrons from sulfides, converting the noxious chemicals into less harmful sulfites, the water within the sediment became more acidic, which devolved some minerals containing iron. The now mobile iron percolated upward in the sediment until it interacted with oxygen from, to form rust. This layer of rust could capture sulfides that would otherwise flow into the water, acting as a firewall that could delay euxenia for over a month or even prevent it altogether. The researchers reported this. Even when the cable bacteria's population dropped, the, the rust layer persisted, protecting other aquatic creatures from sulfide exposure. The rust may explain why even though instances of nutrient pollution, algae blooms, and oxygen depletion are relatively common, 
reports of euxenia are rare. Now, some researchers are trying to harness the bacteria's electrical abilities to tackle another devastating threat to coastal ecosystems, oil spills. Now, when an oil spill happens in a body of water, blooms, skimmers, or sorbents are often deployed to limit the amount of hydrocarbons on the surface. But oil may also wash into the beaches, mix with sediments and shallow waters, and aggregate onto sinking particles of organic debris, hitching a ride to the sea floor. Some soil-dwelling microorganisms can, u- can use hydrocarbons to fuel their metabolism, and researchers have been studying how some of these oil burners might assist in the cleanup of contaminated sediments. But as they break down carbohydrates, the microbes generate those concerning sulfides, which are de- detrimental to the microbes' own survival. In other words, the microbes can help clean up the oil for only so long before they're overwhelmed by their toxic waste. And cable bacteria might just be the solution. Researchers are now trying to develop methods to promote cable bacteria growth in the field and see if it's possible to enhance their effect on oil degradation. One catch is that in oil-contaminated sediment, oxygen is quickly used up by the microbes that break down hydrocarbons. That's a problem since cable bacteria need access to oxygen. Salts that slowly release oxygen or nitrate, which cable bacteria can use in place of oxygen, might help spur the electrical organism's growth at oil spills. But more work is needed to identify the right chemical components and dosage. How revolutionary is that concept, using these cable bacteria to clean up the oceans, to clean up oil spills? Finding solutions at the microbial level is really cutting edge and it'll be interesting to follow this story and see how this develops over time. This next story is brought to you by Forbes. The sun is now more active than NASA predicted. It could be in its strongest cycle since records began. Not only is Earth suddenly spinning faster, but our sun is getting more active than NASA predicted. The sun appears to have a cycle of about 11 years during which it waxes and wanes. Its activity is measured by a number of sunspots on its surface, which have been counted each day since 1755. During that 11 or so years, there is a solar minimum when there are the fewest sunspots, and a solar maximum when there are the most sunspots. The sun's activity has quickly ramped up, and even though we haven't reached peak levels in this cycle, the sun's activity is already exceeding predictions said Nicola Fox, director of NASA's Heliophysics Division, in a blog last week. Solar events will continue to increase as we near solar maximum in 2025, and our lives and technology on Earth, as well as satellites and astronauts in space, will be impacted. If you've listened to my show before, you know how concerned I am about these X-flares, these direct hits of supercharged particles if we get a direct hit and it's powerful enough it will wipe out our electrical grid that should be on the top of the agenda when it comes to our leadership in this country it's probably the most important agenda that there could be to to harden that infrastructure satellites in space there are so many things are reliant upon that for our lives i don't think most people realize how important and detrimental it is so i've talked about our active sun before. And we have the Carrington event happened in the 1800s. Telegrams, burnout, hasn't happened since. Now, we don't use telegrams anymore. Highly sophisticated technology that's very vulnerable to this type of stuff. 
Now more activity on the sun's surface means more solar flares and solar eruptions, which put more charged particles into space. This space weather, when directed at Earth, could mean interruptions to radio signals, surges in electrical grids, damages to GPS satellites, and risks to spacecraft and astronauts on the International Space Station. Now why is that? Because these charged particles, it's radiation. However, exactly how many sunspots there will be during solar maximum, and therefore how active our sun will get during the peak of this current cycle, is unknown. The more charged up the solar wind headed towards Earth, the brighter and more frequent are displays of aurora. Now, there was an intense season of northern lights last winter and spring, which had been the most obvious visual effect of, our, of more intense space weather and increased geomagnetic activity. In fact, December 2021 saw over twice the number of sunspots predicted, 67 to the expected 26. So our sun is getting more active. And it's something that I hope our leadership takes seriously sooner than later. Let's just put it to you like that. Well, I want to thank you for once again listening to The S Factor, where it's all about science. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net, and you can listen to the show the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And if you love science and you know people that love science and education and technology, please refer them to the show. And if, they, and if they're podcast listeners, this show is available in podcast form as well. Just head over to your favorite podcasting service and type in The S Factor Podcast and I'll pop right up. Whether it's Google or Apple Podcast or Amazon Prime or Spotify, I'm on all of them. And if you love educational content, fun educational content, check out scienceanimated.net. And as always, check me out online on Facebook at scienceanimated is my handle there. Or if you type in facebook.com scienceanimated, that might be the easiest way to access the content actually and, and find me. I know a lot of people, millions and millions of people use Facebook every day. So if you're on that anyway, just type in the search at the at symbol science animated, or just go up to the address bar, type in facebook.com slash science animated, and I will pop right up. Feel free to send me a message, anything that you want to know about the show, any of the topics that I cover, any questions about my content. And also there's still a little bit of time before school starts if you're a teacher out there looking for something worthwhile to show your students, please check out Science Animated the Human Body. That's my film. And if you're in Vineland, it's actually available on DVD at Ardry's Photo Quick on Main Road and actually also at the Quick Loop Station in Vineland on Main Road. And of course, the DVD is available and the stream is also available on my website, scienceanimated.net. So lots of easy ways to to purchase that movie, and it's a movie that's revered and loved nationwide. I get letters from people, emails, and it is quite, and it makes me quite happy to know that so many people enjoy the science animated content. It makes me feel great. Well, once again, thank you for joining me here on the S Factor, where it's all about science. I will see you next month with another brand new show. Until then, be safe and stay curious. This is Chuck Shazer with the S Factor right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. Take care, everybody.